The scripture reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 12 through 26. It can be found on page 961 in the Black Bibles. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But if we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, even, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, Christ, and if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Be each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Charles. Thanks, Jana Faye. And thank you all for being here. Good morning. My name is John Trapp. I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King. It is a joy to have all of you here with us this morning. Uh, if you're a visitor at Christ the King, a particular welcome to you. Really glad to have you here. Maybe you're looking around and you're like, I, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be here. Do I belong here or not? Listen, I want you to look back at some of the words that you just heard all the people in this room say during our confession. All, you heard all of us say we confess that we remain captive to the sins of doubt and fear. You heard all of us saying that we waste God's gifts, we wander from his ways, we forget his love, we overlook our neighbor, we're constantly fixated on ourselves. This is not a room of people who think that we're better than you. This is a room full of people who think that we need a savior. And so what we do every week in Christ the King when we come to this portion of our worship service is we open God's word and we consider what it has to say to us because we really do believe that God's word is good news for sinners like us. So I hope you'll um, go along with me. I'm going to kind of go um, pretty close to the text today. And if you don't have a Bible, th take this Bible home with you. It's a, it's a gift from us to you. Um, the Bibles that are in front of you in the seats, um, we would love for you to have one if you don't have one already. Um, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll begin. Let me pray. 
Father, we do give you thanks that we have resurrection hope in Jesus, and we pray that you would help us to see it now as we consider your word. Help us to see our need for Jesus and his uh, magnificent provision of all the grace that we ever could need. Um, And we pray that you would help us to see that by the power of your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, we've been going through the book of Acts together as a church, and we started all the way back in August. And last week, we were looking at how... Paul started the church in Corinth, which we said was, it was a commercial city. It was a lot like Houston, actually, really diverse city. People from all over the place came to Corinth. It was also um, similar to Houston, a city with a lot of immorality and sin. And I want you to imagine being this church in Corinth that had been pastored by Paul for two years, and now he's gone on, it's probably three or four years later, Paul writes them this letter. It was most likely the springtime, very, very possibly around Easter, that he writes them this letter. And so imagine gathering in the church service, someone, you know, they roll out this letter from Pastor Paul. He's got some words for us. And Pastor Paul just starts airing everyone's dirty laundry because he's heard about what's been going on in the church of Corinth. He starts talking about all the division in the church. He starts talking about all the arrogance in the church. He starts talking about the kind of sexual immorality that was present in the church that would have made like daytime talk show kind of stuff, like Jerry, Jerry, like that kind of stuff going on in the church. He starts talking about how there, is, um, there are people in the church who are coming to communion and they're just getting drunk at the communion table. And not only that, but they're keeping the poor from being able to come and and share communion with them. This was a messed up church that he was writing to, which should give us some comfort because that's us. And what he does is he points this needy, messed up, sinful group of people to Easter. That's how he ends his letter. He he gives us the longest, most in-depth explanation about all the implications of Easter here in this letter. So that a group of people who are perhaps stressed about all of the failure in their own lives, in their own midst, and all of the threats outside in the Roman Empire, both inside and outside the church can be reminded that the past Easter event, the past Easter event shapes our present reality by securing a hope for the future. That is what he's telling us in Easter. But the question is, what if it didn't really happen? Like, what if the resurrection isn't real? So, another Easter miracle. I'm only doing a two-point sermon today. You all ready for this? Usually three, we're doing two. Here we go. First, the consequences of no resurrection. Like, what if the resurrection didn't happen? What would the consequences be? That's the first point. The consequences of no resurrection. And then second, the reality of the resurrection consequences in the reality. So look at verse 12. He's heard that there's people in the church who are doubting if the resurrection is true. And so he says, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Like, what are you doing? Why, like, why are you, why would you come to, and be part of the church if you don't believe that it's true? Now, now listen, we are welcome to bring our doubts and this is, a play, this, is a, this is a place where we wrestle with doubt. But Paul's saying, if, if the resurrection isn't true, 
Well, here's a couple of implications. First, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Like, if Christ hasn't been raised, it doesn't matter how pretty the sermon is. And they've been arguing, by the way, about who's the better sermon preacher. It's Apollos. No, it's Paul. No, it's Peter. They've been having division inside the church. He's like, listen, none of that matters if Jesus hasn't been raised. But not only is your preaching in vain, is our preaching in vain, but also he says, your faith is in vain. It doesn't matter how strong or impressive your faith is. If it's not based in reality, it doesn't matter. My family got a chance to go on a Disney cruise not too long ago. And we took the five trap kids on a cruise ship, kind of terrifying, but we did it. And if you go on a Disney cruise, one of the things that happens is they have these, these shows in the evening and you, know, you go, it's this big theater. And they, they did, um, one of the plays was called Disney Dreams, an Enchanted Classic. And the story goes, it's this little girl named Anne-Marie who's growing up and she's about to become a middle schooler. And she, um, she is nervous about becoming an adult. And so guess who shows up in her windowsill? Peter Pan, right? Peter Pan shows up. And he, uh, he tells her about the power of belief. And like, you can fly if you just believe. And then she's, the whole, the whole place, she's struggling with whether or not she actually believes that this is possible. She's visited by Tinkerbell, Peter Pan, Mickey, Cinderella, the whole, the whole gang. And the final scene comes down to this moment of whether or not she really, does Anne-Marie really believe? And she stands on the railing of her balcony and Peter tells her, you can do this. Remember, faith, trust, and pixie dust. And she says, I can do this. I believe in my dreams. I know how to fly. And then she just sails all throughout the crowd. Really fun ending, terrifying lesson. Like, we're watching this, and our kids are just like, you know, marveling at this. And as we're leaving, my, my wife, Chrissy's like, okay, we're on rail watch for like the rest of this trip. <laughs> like, how many kids have been concussed by believing that if they just have a little faith, trust, and pixie dust, they can fly? Now listen, Christianity is based on an his- historical event that happened Your preaching could be great, faith could be great, but if it's not grounded in something real, in reality, it's really just faith, trust, and pixie dust. And Paul's like, why are you doing this? Why are you even here? But he goes on to give us more consequences of the resurrection not being real. Look at verse 17. He says, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Jesus' dying words, Jesus' dying words on the cross, tetelestai, which in that language meant, it is finished. The work that I came here to do is finished. The payment for sin is finished. Which, fun fact, do you want to know what Buddha's dying words were? Strive without ceasing. It's not finished. You've got to keep pressing on. You've got to be, keep, keep becoming more and more and better and better. 
Jesus says it's finished, to tell us that. It's the same word that if, if you had a debt, maybe, maybe you own like a, have a land debt and you pay it off, they would stamp to tell us die on that debt. It's finished, you're done. When Jesus dies, he says to tell us die. It's the same, like if you, maybe next week y'all go over to Walmart, buy a big TV, maybe, you know, you're walking out, of the t- out with the TV and there's that nice person that they hired to just like be nice, but also they're checking you out. Why are they checking you out? Do they have the receipt? You show them. You could, don't say to tell us die, but you could say it. It's I paid for this. It's finished. You can't charge me for this again. The resurrection is the receipt that the payment has been made. God is verifying that the payment has been made in full. I heard another pastor say, "Imagine that uh, you couldn't pay your electric bill one month, and." The lights go out, and you're sitting in your house, and a couple days later, all of a sudden, the lights come back on again. What do you know has happened? What's the most logical response for what's happened? Someone has paid the bill that you couldn't pay, and now the lights are on, and that's the resurrection. Jesus has defeated death. The lights are back on. The resurrection is God telling us that the payment is complete. So Listen, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, the good news that that this is for you is that there is nothing that stands between you and your father. You are his beloved child, not because you keep on striving without ceasing. It's because he's finished it. And so you have the beloved smile of God upon you. If Christ has not been raised, though, you're still in your sins, Paul says. And then he goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, verse 18 then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's a dark one. There's probably, it's, it's maybe one of the reasons why some of the Corinthians were doubting because they had seen people in their church die and they hadn't risen from the dead yet. And they said, what about this resurrection from the dead business? Where are they? Why are they dead? And Paul says, listen, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, they're gonna stay dead. then our, the tragedy of death is that we have permanently gone into the abyss. We've been swallowed by it whenever we die, never to be seen from again. That the ones that we love will never hear again. We'll never hear their stories again. We'll never hear their laugh again. We'll never, never eat their cooking again. They're gone if Christ has not been raised. And he goes on to say in verse 19, if Christ has not been raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. Like, how foolish are we, he's saying, to to follow somebody who's dead, who's claiming to be alive. Like, why are we spending our time modeling our life after him or obeying him or living lives as Christians. Why be a Christian? In verse 32, we didn't read it, but later on he says, listen, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Which is what the Epicurean philosophers of that day said, which makes sense. Like if this is it, if this is our life, live it up as much as you can, do as much as you can, enjoy as much as you can, because we're all headed to the same oblivion. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. And the reason I'm kidding about that 
is because that's actually not the end. Because of the reality of the resurrection. Look at verse 20. When he starts talking about the resurrection, what does he say first in verse 20? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul is staking his life not on a legend, but on a fact. And maybe, maybe to you, the Christian story sounds like a myth or a fairy tale. But that doesn't make it untrue. It's the true myth. It's the true fairy tale. It's the factual story of what God has done to rescue us from death. And there's lots of support of this fact. I want to talk about that for a second. First, both Christian scholars and non-Christian scholars agree on one thing concerning, well, a lot of things, but one thing in particular I want to talk about concerning the death of Jesus and the resurrection story. And what they agree on is that the tomb was empty. The reason that non-Christian and Christian scholars agree that the tomb was empty because if the tomb of Jesus wasn't empty, the story of his resurrection never would have gotten out because you could have just gone and looked at his body. And it was very public where he was buried. This guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man in Jerusalem, he was part of the Sanhedrin, which was like a ruling class. Everyone knew who Joseph of Arimathea was. They knew where his grave was. And Jesus was placed in a public, well-known grave. And a stone was rolled in front of his grave. And if he hadn't actually risen from the dead, you could go and look at it. And there were plenty of people in that day who would have had a vested interest in going and showing that Jesus' body is still here. The Jews who didn't convert to Christianity, who saw Christianity as a threat, the Romans who saw Christianity upending their empire, skeptics, they all could have gone and looked at the grave and seen that there was a body there, but there wasn't. The tomb was empty. So the question you have to ask yourself is why was the tomb empty? That's the question. Why was the tomb empty? One theory is called the swoon theory. Like Jesus didn't actually die, he swooned on the cross. He appeared dead. But there's some problems with this theory. One problem is that Rome was really good at killing people. And the, cru like the crucifixion was a lethal, horrible way to die. And not only that, but if you're, going to go, if you're going to go with the swoon theory, you have to also deal with the fact that he was handled, Jesus' body was handled by Nicodemus and by Joseph of Arimathea, people who later believed in the resurrection of Christ. And so you've got these people who spent time wrapping about 100 pounds of spices around Jesus in his burial and putting him in a grave. They saw, they were up close touching his body, seeing his body with no pulse, no breath, and they believed in the resurrection. But not only that, if Jesus just kind of appeared dead, you also have to square with how did he, half bled out and half dead, get up, roll the stone away, and get past Roman guards? And then how could he, half bled out, half dead, show up, to the disciples and they would conclude, hallelujah, he's defeated death even though he looks like death. New bodies, resurrection. They wouldn't have concluded that. So another popular reason for why the, why the tomb was empty 
is that the body was stolen. Somebody, because the tomb, the tomb was empty. But perhaps the body of Jesus was, was stolen. Well, a couple things to consider if that's the road that you're going to take. Because first you need to consider who the disciples who supposedly stole this body were, right? The disciples before the crucifixion of Jesus are terrified. As soon as he's arrested, they run away. They leave him. They're gone. Peter is so afraid, he denies even being associated with Jesus to a little servant girl who has no power to punish him or do anything about it. They're that afraid. And they're gone. And sometime in that meantime, if you're going with the stolen body theory, you have to square that those scared, powerless, Galilean fishermen did some like Ocean's Eleven stuff and like rallied and figured out how to get past the most powerful army's guards that were set up and armed and in front of the tomb. And then the other issue with that is you also have to square with the reality that these disciples who denied knowing and being related to him, to a servant girl who who were so afraid and ran away that those same disciples after the supposed resurrection went from being terrified and scared and cowardly to courageous and willing to take any kind of suffering, any kind of persecution to proclaim the resurrection. And y'all, like they didn't get much out of this deal. They weren't lying so that, you know, they would look good. Read the gospels. All throughout the gospels, they kind of look like idiots. They're constantly failing, constantly doubting, even after the resurrection in Matthew 28, this is one of my favorite ones. Matthew 28, Jesus shows up, he's resurrected. It says they're worshiping him and some doubted. Like he's resurrected in front of them and it's so human because it's what we would do. We'd be like, I can't believe my eyes right now. Like they're doubting. Now, if you were making up a religion, you wouldn't put that in the text. You'd be like, he showed up, we worshiped him and we all believed. You should too. But you know why they put that they were doubting in there? Because they're just telling you what happened. It's based in fact. It's historical. Like we, were, we doubted. We couldn't believe that this was happening. We got it wrong over and over and time and time again. Jesus is resurrected. And you know what else? Here's the thing. Not only did they look bad in their testimony of, in like producing the gospels and, and telling everyone about the good news of Jesus, they also didn't get much out of it. They didn't get any power. They didn't get any money. You know what they got? persecution but they were willing they were willing to take whatever so that they could tell the good news of Jesus I mean like when Thomas went to the far east maybe even as far as India and was killed and every single one of these other disciples scattered all across the globe you would think that there would be some historical evidence of somewhere of one of those disciples right before he's about to get killed being like whoa, 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 whoa wait all right no one else is around I'm let you all in a secret is a whole big lie please don't kill me but none of them did why because it's a fact blaise pascal french philosopher mathematician he said i believe the witnesses that get their throats slit 
Like they were willing to die for this. I believe that. But also because Jesus has risen, look at verse 20. Because he's risen, he's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. First fruit. Okay, so they were in an agrarian society, they're using farming language real quick. Let's say you have a fig tree and it's the winter time and a couple freezes come through. You don't know if your fig tree's made it. Will we have a fig crop? How do you know you're gonna have a fig crop? When the spring rolls around and that first fig pops out onto that branch, you know your tree is alive and that there's more coming. And Paul uses that analogy to say, listen, Jesus is the first fruit of our resurrection. In other words, do you wanna know what eternity's gonna be like? What's headed your way if you're in Christ? Look at Jesus' body. Because his body is the first fruit of our resurrection. And you know what? Like Jesus' body was a real body. Like it was a physical, tangible body that ate and drank. It still is. It's, still, it's a real body that eats and drinks. He, he, when Mary sees him, he must have been like, I don't know, smelling flowers or playing. Like she thinks he's a gardener. Like he's doing stuff with his body. We get real resurrected bodies. A friend of mine was talking to his grandfather who had uh, horrible debilitating pain in his knee. And uh, he was asking how things were going. His grandfather said, I had, I had an interesting dream last night. What was your dream? I was running. My friend's like, yeah, okay, and then what? And he goes, no, I was running. Do you know how long it's been since I've run? That's the resurrection hope. Like the parts of our bodies that are broken. The parts about our, ourselves that don't work anymore. Chronic pain. All of that made new and right. Kids, I want y'all to listen to me for a second. Because I, I, I was wrong about something, about how the Bible worked for a long time. Okay, I see faces looking at me. I don't want, I'm your pastor. I don't want you to miss this like I missed it, okay? I thought that heaven was going to be like going up into a bunch of clouds. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? And then like maybe some like fat looking angel babies in diapers, plucking harps. Do you think about heaven that way sometimes? It's kind of terrifying actually. It doesn't sound very heavenly. I thought that's what heaven was like. But if Jesus is the first fruit of our resurrection, kids, you know what that means? That we get what Jesus gets. We get new bodies that, that will eat and drink and run and play. And you know what else I didn't get? I thought that eternity ended up with us in heaven. That is not how the Bible ends. If you don't believe me, read Revelation 21 later tonight with your parents. Say, Pastor John asked us to read Revelation 21. Look what happens. Heaven, we don't end up going to heaven at the end of the Bible. At the end of the Bible, heaven comes to earth. And Jesus says, behold, he doesn't say, behold, I'm making all new things. It's gonna be a bunch of new stuff you're unfamiliar with, but it's gonna be streets of gold and it's gonna be really unfamiliar. And we used to have trees, but now I'm making trees and they have sapphires on them. And it's, he doesn't say I'm making all new things. 
He says, I'm making all things new. All the things in this world that make the world feel like home, like a good meal, or laughing hard with your friends, or music that makes you want to move. All of that kind of stuff is a whisper of home. Jesus is making all things new. Your bodies will be made new. Heaven will actually feel more like home than anything has ever felt before. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's what Jesus has done. And the way that he will make that happen, verse 24, because Jesus has risen, he will destroy every rule, authority, and power. Every rule and authority Jesus will put under his feet. Think about how powerless they felt against Rome. You know who's about to, who maybe has already become the Roman emperor when they're receiving this letter? A man named Nero, who would be feeding Christians to lions and burning them alive. You know how powerless they must felt. And they say, Paul says, listen, Jesus is going to put Rome under his feet. Every single power, every single unjust system, every tool of oppression will be crushed by Lord Jesus. He will destroy every power. He will destroy poverty and cancer and human trafficking and bullying and violence. He will destroy isolation and separation. No more fleeing your country because of war in Jesus' kingdom. No more loneliness, no more orphans, no more widows because death will be defeated by King Jesus. And he's already defeated it in his resurrection, and it's just the first fruit. In 1944, during World War II, there was a 21-year-old British gunner named Sergeant Nicholas Alchemade. He was a tail gunner in a four-engine Avro Lancaster bomber. And he was, uh, his job was to kind of face the back and defend the plane by shooting out the back And they were returning from a bombing mission over Berlin when a German fighter pilot strafed their plane and the plane burst into flames. And the pilot gave the eject command. And the other three men in his plane ejected. Nicholas, who was laying on his belly and had his parachute at his feet, turned to get his parachute and he saw that his parachute was completely incinerated by the fire. So now he had a choice. Go down with this plane that's going to burn me alive or jump. And so he chose jump. 18,000 feet over Germany, he jumps. And three hours later, he woke up. I am not kidding. Google it. Three hours later, he wakes up. And he kind of comes to himself, and he's looking around, and he's surrounded by white. And he's like, is this it? He had landed in a snowdrift through the forest, kind of branches slowed him down, plops into a snowdrift, he's got a twisted knee and some scratches, and he's alive. Actually, this happened multiple times in World War II, which is crazy. So he begins blowing his whistle. For, you know, if you're lost, I guess they give him whistles to blow, so someone come find him. And he was found by the German Gestapo. Do you know what he did when they came? He hugged them. Do you know why? They weren't the enemy. He had had a brush with the real enemy, which is death. 
he had brushed up against death and was alive. Y'all, the real enemy is death. And Jesus has defeated it. Paul is telling this church that is struggling, that is sinful, that is scared. He reminds them, you have hope in the resurrection of Jesus because of what he's done. It's finished. So anyone, and listen, there's there, this many people here this morning, there's got to be people here who don't yet believe in Jesus. I want you to consider believing in him. It's the best news. If the resurrection is true, it changes everything. Come to him. Come to him knowing that you don't have to strive without ceasing. All you do is come to him, repent and believe. And he is gracious. He is gracious to big old messy sinners like me. He's gracious. So come to him. And if you, if you have come to him, if your faith is in him, y'all, be encouraged this Easter that the first fruit of our resurrection is alive. And he is coming. And we will be resurrected because of the work of our King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are alive listening even now to our prayer. You are risen from the dead and we pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would give us the faith to walk in newness of life because of the work that you've done. I pray for um, friends here who do not yet know you. I ask, Lord, that you would be at work in their life, that you would show them more and more how rooted in fact in history this wonderful miracle of your resurrection hope is and that they might believe. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.